Welcome to this week's message from Southland Church. For more information about this message and other resources, visit myselfland.com. So we're in a series uh, called Beginnings, and uh, we could also call it kind of Foundations. It's Beginnings. We're looking at the first two chapters of Genesis. And last week, we looked at the age of the earth. And this week, I actually want to, I have to take a little bit of a rabbit trail. There's, and there's so many questions. By the way, thank you for the questions. I got some more this morning in the, in the cafe, and I love it. People ask me questions. Uh, so many people have pent up questions from the first chapters of Genesis. And, uh, and so that's what we're doing, beginnings. This, um, this weekend's message is just a little bit of a rabbit trail, kind of coming out of last week. It's not about the age of the earth today, but it's, it's, it's a little bit of a rabbit trail. And, uh, and then we'll get back into Genesis again next week. But it's all part of this series. It's all part of the same topic. I want to talk about uh, how do we interpret the Bible? Uh, because our faith rises or falls based on this book. Is that not true? Yeah. Like, if this book is not true then our faith is not true. We have no hope for, for, the, for eternity, for salvation, you know, all that sort of stuff. Our faith rises or falls on this book. Amen. And so I want to talk today about how do we interpret this book because there are many different ways that people read God's Word. And of course, there's some people today, they're, they're not Christians, and they would read the Bible in order just to discredit it. So there's those kinds of people. Those are people outside the church. And uh, part of this message series is also designed as an apologetic. It's also speaking to them. But that's not what today's message is about. Today is messages towards those of us who are inside the church. And within the church, there are also different ways of reading the Bible. So some people, more to the, on the theologically liberal uh, spectrum, uh, you know, they read the Bible. They still want to be, call themselves Christians and faithful to the Word. And, um, but really what they want to do is they want to keep the parts that they like or that are palatable to them, that are politically correct or whatever. And then everything else they want to write off as sort of myth or, uh, you know, that just doesn't, doesn't count anymore or they just want to ignore it or whatever. So you've got people within the church who read it and they want to take out bits and pieces. They want to split it up into parts that are myths and not true and parts that are true that they like. So that's one end of the spectrum. And on the other end of the spectrum within the church, you have people, you know, well-meaning people who in their zeal to honor the Word of God and in their zeal to say, this is the Word of God, um, they take interpretations of the Bible and sometimes make the Bible say things it's not meaning to say and give those things authority that when those things crumble, it looks like the Word of God is crumbling as well. And so what I want to talk about today is, is how, do we, how are we to read the Bible so that we don't fall into either of these ditches? Okay? How do we read the Bible so that we do not fall into either of these ditches, all right? So I want to start by making a statement. This is what we believe about the Word of God, and this is the statement on which everything else in this message is founded. Here's the statement. The Bible is the Word of God, which means it is absolutely 100% true in everything it means to teach, okay? So that's what we believe here at Southland. That's what I believe. Uh, I mean, that's, that's my life. I, I, that's what I believe. The Bible is the Word of God, which means it is absolutely 100% true in everything it means to teach. Now, some of you have already noticed maybe a word that sticks out of, at you in this definition. Am I correct? Yeah. And the word is means. It is absolutely true. It says a lot of Christians would just say the Bible is the Word of God and it is 100% absolutely true in everything it teaches, which I actually agree with. 
But I have to put in that word means because sometimes we interpret into the Bible things it's not meaning to teach. And when we do that, we can actually erode the authority of Scripture. And I'm going to show you examples and historical examples in this message. We can actually erode the, the authority of Scripture and cause people's faith to be shaken or cause people outside of the church to, uh, to mock the faith over things that the Bible is not meaning to teach. So particularly today, and we could do a whole message series just on this topic. Really, we could. But particularly today, I want to compare two kinds, and there's other different kinds of readings, but I want to compare two kinds of reading the Bible, and then I want us to explore how we read this book that God has given us. It is actually God's Word, and it is eternal. And so the two readings I want to compare today are I want to compare a literal reading of Scripture with a literalistic reading of Scripture, okay? A literal reading of Scripture with a literalistic reading of Scripture, okay? So now for the purpose of this message, I just have to set a little bit of a, a foundation here for this message. So just start with a couple of definitions. For the purposes of this message, when I uh, talk about a literal reading of Scripture, now I don't know, you know, not every scholar will define this the same way, but for what I'm using the word in this message, when I talk about a literal reading of Scripture, I mean interpreting the Bible to mean exactly what the author intended it to mean. Okay, so if the author intended what he was writing to be poetry... I'm not going to take it to mean something else. I'm going to take it to mean what he intended it to mean. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay? Now, I want to contrast that in this message today. And again, this is a worldview. This whole series is a worldview series. And I really believe what we're talking about today is absolutely vitally important, especially in this day and age, for every Christian to understand with their worldview, how do we approach the Bible? I want to contrast a literal reading of the Bible, which that is what we attempt, and none of us is perfect. But here at this church... We attempt to read the Bible literally in that sense, understanding the author to mean what he meant to mean. So if he meant it to be poetry, I don't want to take it as something else, okay? A literalistic reading of the Bible is different from that in that in a literalistic reading of the text, we sum up the literal meanings of the words to give us the meaning of the text. You know, you say, now that might be a little bit like, I don't really know the difference between those two things, okay? So let me show you an, an example of how those two things are different. And we'll, different. we'll use lots of examples in this message, okay? Imagine, uh, like yesterday, it rained quite a bit in the afternoon, okay? So imagine that yesterday, uh, you know, night I go to bed and I write in my journal, it rained cats and dogs today, okay? And I, I'll write that in my journal. Now, let's imagine, so a week goes by, a month goes by, years go by, centuries go by. And for some unknown reason, I don't know why, don't need to go into that, it's just an illustration, but there has risen up a following of people who are following uh, my teachings. Chrisites, they're following the teachings of Chris Dirksen. Some of them are my descendants, my great-great-great-grandkids, okay? And they're, they're really into following my teachings. And so, let's say 500 years from now, they uncover this journal, and they're, and they're super pumped. Oh, my goodness. Great, 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 great grandfather, Chris. Wow. We have his writings and his, some more teachings here. This is incredible. And they're going through it, and they come to the entry for September 22nd, 2018, and they read, Today it rained cats and dogs. And their minds are utterly blown. This is one of the most bizarre miracles we've ever heard of. And someone says, whoa, 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 I don't think that's what he meant. And immediately they silence this person. What? Are you questioning the integrity 
of great-great-great-great-grandfather Chris, are you saying God's not powerful enough to drop cats and dogs from the sky? Well, well, no, no, that's not what I'm saying. Well, he wrote. What do the words mean? It rained cats and dogs. And so now they begin. So nobody's allowed to question that because to question that is to question the one they're following or to question the power of God. And so they begin teaching people and now even they go further because now they have to confirm from science. They start to do all kinds of, make up all kinds of scientific explanations how cats and dogs could fall from the sky. And by, do, by talking about these things enough, it starts to seem plausible to people. And they have to go back into historical records and make it seem and find historical evidence that cats and dogs fell from the sky. And finally someone just comes up to them and says, guys, it was a figure of speech. It didn't mean cats and dogs falling from the sky. It meant it rained a lot that day. Am I, am I right? Now, that right there is an example that contrasts a literal reading versus a literalistic. A literal reading is what I meant it to mean. I didn't mean it that cats and dogs fell out of the sky yesterday. I meant that it rained a lot. And I used a figure of speech. So if, if I came back from the grave in 800 years and found, or 500 years or whatever, and found they were teaching this other bizarre thing, I would say, whoa, whoa, stop, guys. That is not what I meant. A literal meaning is it rained a lot. A literalistic meaning looks at each of the words and says, this is what it means. Cats and dogs fell out of the sky. Now, sometimes with the literalistic readings, I see a lot of fear driving people because they're afraid. It, I mean, what we want it to be is that the Bible was written by a computer and it's easy to just break down. Just look at what the words say and that's what it means. But Unfortunately for those people, that's, the Bible wasn't written by computers, it was written by people. And so the Bible actually contains a number of different kinds of literary styles and different things within it. I can't talk about all of them in this message, but I do want to talk about four, okay? So first of all, the Bible contains poetry, uh, things like poetry and hyperbole. Now I'm not going to talk about the poetry one, I just don't have time today. Um, and I think that one is obvious, but the Bible uses things like poetry and hyperbole and figures of speech. So let's look at an example in the scripture of hyperbole, okay? Hyperbole is any time I exaggerate something, but not exaggerating it in the sense of something that's sinful that I need to confess that is set free. It's things we do all the time. We exaggerate things uh, in an obvious way, and we call that hyperbole, things like, uh, you know, uh, just trying to think, uh, you know, husbands. You know, your, your wife sent you to the store to get something, you came back and you know it took longer than she thought it should. And so when you come in immediately, you just tell her, the lineups were taking forever. Okay? Now what do you mean by that? Do you mean that the lineups literally stretched out in an infinite line? And that they, it will take into infinity of, of eternity for that? No, that's not what you mean. You just mean you were in a hurry the lineup was moving far too slow, there was too many people, and it was taking a long time. So you just said those lineups were taking forever. That's hyperbole. We use it all the time. I just used it when I said we use it all the time. <laughs> That's hyperbole. Every human culture throughout history speaks this way. It's what we humans do. It's not that we're lying. It's not that we're making things up. It's called hyperbole. We like to do it. Okay? And the Bible is filled with hyperbole. Let me show you an example. I'll show you another one in a, in a few minutes after this as well. But let's look at just one quick example. Judges 20, verses 15 to 16. And the people of Benjamin mustered out of their cities on that day 26,000 men who drew the sword. 
besides the inhabitants of Gibeah who mustered 700 chosen men. Verse 16, among all these were 700 chosen men who were left-handed, everyone who could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. Now, I'm imagining some guy they've captured from another tribe, some poor guy from Judah or Simeon or Dan, and he's standing 50 yards off with a hair like this, and these guys are, and every one of them hits the hair every single time. Is that the teaching here? Is that what I should preach a message on? No. He's just saying they were really, really accurate. Okay? They were really, really accurate. You don't want to get in a fight with them, but they're human beings. They miss sometimes, and certainly not at a hair, okay? Okay? They were really, really accurate. Now, it's not just hyperbole. It's also figures of speech. Okay? The Bible has figures of speech in it. Uh, let me show you one in Job 29. Okay? Job 29, verse 1. And Job, took, uh, Job again took up his discourse and said, Oh, that I were as in the months of old. Okay, so he's, he's suffering, you know, he's got his kids, his sores, his body, all this bad stuff, and he's, he's looking back and he's wishing he was back in the time when everything was going good. And he says this, when the Almighty was yet with me, when my children were all around me, verse 6, when my steps were washed with butter, that's already got to be a figure of speech, and the rock poured out for me streams of oil. Now, okay, the rock poured out for me streams of oil. If we read this literalistically, we got rock, we got oil. Now, I can do all kinds of bizarre things. I get myself on YouTube and garner thousands of, of views because I get these links sent to me all the time. People on YouTube who are finding ancient technologies and various things by reading verses in weird ways out of the Bible. And so I can look at this verse and say, Job, this is an example of ancient technology. Job was actually drilling for oil 3,000 years ago. Or... I could take this in some kind of weird way of, you know, Job, wherever he walked, the rocks just gushed out oil from him. All of that is just bizarre. You say, yeah, but that's what the words say. But that is not what they mean. He's talking about having an abundance. He's out, the rocks uh, gushing out oil, he's talking about he was prosperous. He had many good things. He was well off. Now, again, some people have fear about that. Oh, goodness, we can make the Bible say whatever we want. No, we can't. Okay? And I know that for some people driven by fear, they would like it if things were mathematical in its precision. But here's the thing. God didn't want to give us a boring book like that. Amen. So we're human, and we have to wrestle with this thing, and that's why we have the church, and that's why we do it together. But the fact of the matter is, the Bible is written by humans, inspired by God. It is true in everything it means to teach. But you better believe there is poetry in here. There is hyperbole in here. There is figures of speech. Now I want to show you another example because this one leads to some other things. I want to show you another example of hyperbole. This one's a little bit bigger. Okay? And we're going to go to Daniel uh, chapter 2, verses 36 to 38. And just give you a little background. This is Daniel is going to interpret a dream now for King Nebuchadnezzar. Right? So famous story. And Nebuchadnezzar, again, was quite a character. Right? He had a, he had a dream. It disturbed him. He calls his magicians over. He says, tell me what the dream means. And they're like, tell us what the dream was. And then he also has a thought. And I don't know, why, no, don't know why other kings hadn't thought that before. These guys could just make up whatever they want. So he says, I don't trust it. You guys can tell me whatever you want to tell me. If you really know what the dream means, you can always also tell me what the dream was. And if you don't, I'm going to pull your houses down on top of you and kill you all with your families. Okay? So he was one of those guys, right? You didn't want to cross him. Uh, when he was having a bad day. But anyway, Daniel, of course, coming to the rescue, him and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are praying and fasting, and now Daniel says, I'll go and tell him the dream. So verse 36, this is the dream. Now, 
We, this is Daniel speaking, will tell the king, Nebuchadnezzar, it's interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory. And into whose hand has, he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all, you are the head of gold. Now, if we take the literalistic meaning of this passage, and we just look at what do the words mean, what is this passage teaching us? It is teaching us that King Nebuchadnezzar literally ruled over every human being on the planet Earth. And not only every human being on the planet, he even ruled over the animals and the birds. Okay? That's what this passage says if we just look at the words. Now, here's a question I have for you. Did Nebuchadnezzar actually rule over every single human being on the earth? Did he? Oh, my goodness. Are you guys questioning the authority of Scripture? Are you saying that you disagree with the Bible? The Bible says that he ruled over every single human being on the planet, but you're saying he didn't, he didn't rule over every single human being on the planet, and we know that, don't we? Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel had no idea of South America, or what we today call Central America, or North America, or Australia, or huge portions of Africa, and Asia, and modern-day Europe. He had no idea those places even existed. He never ruled over the Mayans, or the Aztecs, or the Mongols, or the Chinese. He never ruled over any of them. Yet here, Daniel says, you, O king, rule over them all. So why does this passage not bother us? Why do we not question the authority of Scripture? And the reason is because we intuitively know when we read it. This is just hyperbole. He's just speaking. You speak to a king like Nebuchadnezzar, and this is just how they spoke to their kings. You're the king. Now, so that's hyperbole, right? It's just like, again, just to use another example, if I tell you the other day, my family and I were driving to Winnipeg and a cop car went flying past us. What do you, what do you see in your mind? And this car goes over top of us. Like this. No. And if you did think that, we would, I would think you were weird. And if you try to tell other people a cop car flew over top of Chris's van, and I know that because Chris never lies, I would say, stop telling that to people. Okay? Because I don't mean that it flew over me. I meant it went speeding past me. That's what I mean. Okay? So Daniel is not trying to give us a lesson in geography that, that Nebuchadnezzar ruled over all this area. See, and what can happen is, and I'm going to show you a historical example after this, but what can happen is Christians who get tied to a literalistic reading, what they can do then is they have to now oppose all of history. They say, well, wait a minute. All the historians are actually lying to us to discredit the Bible. And actually, I'm going to prove it. And so they're going to now go into the Amazon jungle and into the deserts of Australia to find Babylonian artifacts. And they're going to interpret them as Babylonian because they have to somehow prove that Nebuchadnezzar ruled over the entire earth, just like the Bible says. But that isn't what the Bible says. It's hyperbole. Okay? Now, the second thing you have to understand here, and this is where it starts to get really interesting, is... What did Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar, again, know about geography? They didn't know much compared to what we know now. Did Daniel have a map, a National Geographic map, like we have today, in his office? And he goes to King Nebuchadnezzar, you're the king over all of this. He did not. He had never, Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel had never encountered the Pacific Ocean or the Atlantic Ocean. That's like a massive chunk of the Earth's surface. 
Okay? Their, their idea of geography was very limited. They had never crossed. They, there might have been some contact with the Chinese by that point already in Babylon, but they had never crossed the Himalayan mountains. Okay? They had no concept of northern Europe or Asia. I mean, they just, they had none. So think about it. When Daniel says you rule over the whole world, it is certainly hyperbole. And at the same time, though, if you think about it, according to what Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar knew, Nebuchadnezzar was the most powerful king they'd ever seen, and he did rule over most of the known world as they knew it. Isn't that true? true. Now, here's the thing. God did not feel the need. Do you think God felt the need before he gives Daniel any of his prophecies? Do you think God felt the need to sit him down for 15 hours and say, Daniel, before you write any of these prophecies down, I have to give you some scientific and geographical updates so you don't write anything that embarrasses us with modern readers thousands of years down the road. So Daniel, before you write any of these prophecies about Nebuchadnezzar, I got got to first tell you a few things. First of all, Daniel, the earth is not flat, it's a globe. And Daniel just goes, get up, smelling salts. Get up, get up. We're not at the prophecy yet. Daniel, the sun does not revolve around the earth. The, ro- the earth revolves around the sun. You've got to get it right or someone, you're going to embarrass us 3,000 years from now. And Daniel just goes, again. And God's going to update him on everything 3,000 years in advance. Did God have to do that? Absolutely not. That wasn't the point of the prophecy. Okay? So God speaks to Daniel, and Daniel goes ahead and makes some stunning prophecies about what's going to happen with future nations that are going to conquer Babylon that are so stunningly accurate that secular historians must insist that Daniel was written after the fact fact because they are so accurate, and yet we have lots of proof that it was written before. Incredible prophecies. He also made some prophecies that haven't quite come true yet in the end times, but lots of prophecies that came through that are amazing. So is it the word of God? Absolutely yes. But are we supposed to learn that Nebuchadnezzar ruled over the entire world and every human being? Absolutely not. Does that make sense? Now let me give you an example now from history to show you how this can to show you how this can can work. And by the way, someone might come along and say, Yeah, but if you're allowed to say that's hyperbole, you can change everything the Bible says, then this is the fear speaking. You can change whatever you want in the Bible to mean whatever you whatever you want it to mean. Huh? Can we? Did we just change the meaning of this passage? We didn't change the meaning of the passage. Did Nebuchadnezzar suddenly become not the king of Babylon? Did did anything substantial change from the meaning of this passage? No, we just said it was hyperbole. Just like if I tell you the story, my family and I drove in our minivan to Winnipeg, and a cop car went flying past me. Now let's say down the road again, someone comes up and says, uh, you know what, that, that was actually a figure of speech, a police car did not actually fly over. Now, now people with fear go, oh, but now you can make that story say whatever you want. No, you can't. I still drove to Winnipeg in a minivan with my family. It's not like suddenly the minivan disappears. I don't suddenly become a she. I don't become a Buddhist from like China instead of a Christian pastor. None of the essentials. Do you see that? There's this fear thing that if I allow for hyperbole and poetry in Scripture, I can change what it teaches. But have we changed anything? We've actually grown in our understanding, haven't we? It's very important that we not approach this with fear. We approach it with common sense in the same way we approach our language with each other. Okay? But let me now show you an example from history and Scripture 
of ways that this has impacted uh, Christians and our faith. Um, for thousands of years, people believed that the sun revolved around the earth and that the earth was stationary. I, I just referenced that a little bit with Daniel, okay? For thousands of years, people believed that. They didn't just believe that because of the Bible. Let me tell you that, first of all. The whole world believed that. And the reason they believed that was because that's what it looks like. I mean, you don't get up in the morning and feel yourself hurtling through space at 67,000 miles per hour. Did you know that's how fast we're traveling right now? Not even including the spinning. In our speed around the sun right now, we are moving at 67,000 miles per hour. Do you know how fast that is per second? 19 miles per second. We just went 19 miles. Another 19 miles. You just went from here to Winnipeg in two seconds, just like that. Okay? But you don't feel that. You don't get up in the morning and feel a 67,000 mile an hour wind just blowing across the face of the earth. So of course, nobody thought the earth was moving. Okay? They didn't believe that because the Bible, Aristotle, 2,300 years ago, uh, was arguing with all kinds of logic and, and philosophical reasons why the sun has to revolve around the earth. That's what just everybody believes. So it wasn't just because the Bible they believed that. Secular, you know, pagan, everybody believed that. But many Christians then looked at passages in Scripture and took that, that the science of the day and then rooted it into the Bible. Okay? And, and started to think that the Bible also taught that. So, and certainly there's many places where the Bible seems to confirm that the sun revolves around the earth. Let me just read you three, okay? And I could read you others. First Chronicles 16, verses 29 to 30. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Now, again, not a trick question. Does the earth move? Man, you guys are disappointing. You, you don't believe the Bible, right? You don't believe the Bible, right? But you all know you do believe the Bible, and I believe the Bible. I believe that top thing there. So how can we believe the Bible when it tells us the earth doesn't move? Well, let me just show you two more verses because I just have to show you. This is in a lot of places in Scripture. Uh, Psalm 93, verse 1, or maybe not a lot of places, but it's in several places. Psalm 93, verse 1, the, the Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He has put on strength as his belt. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. In Psalm 104, verse 5, he, that's God, set the earth on its foundation so that it should never be moved. So, for thousands of years, uh, this is what people believed. Then, 1515, a Christian guy by the name of Copernicus. Now, by the way, this is really important if he's a Christian. Anytime you go out in the world today and you hear this story told, it's always told about how religion and science are against each other. This was not, relig this was not Christianity in the Bible versus science. Everybody, including people who didn't believe the Bible, thought the sun revolved around the earth. That's the first point. You can even raise your hand when they give that talk and remind them of that. And here's the second point you can remind them of. And it was Christians who figured out that it was the earth around the sun. Copernicus was a Christian, so was Galileo, who put the nail in the coffin, you know, 60 or 70 years after Copernicus was gone, okay? Copernicus, a Christian, is putting together a calendar for the Pope, and in his calculations and different things he's doing, he comes to the conclusion that actually the earth revolves around the sun. Now, this was so, think about it, we have never had any experience like this in our generation, nothing like this. You have got to realize how unbelievably mind-blowing this is for people. For thousands of years, we've watched the sun move, and now someone's going to tell me 
We're the ones moving. And you have to remember, too, there was a whole philosophy built up around this. People, not just Christians, argued that human beings are the center of the universe and it has to revolve around us. So when Copernicus is, is going to put this hypothesis out there, it literally, it was not just a scientific revolution, it was a human revolution. It was like, blow your mind, okay? And in fact, because of that, Copernicus was a little bit freaked out and so he holds off publishing this till right near the end of his life for like 30 years. He doesn't publish it. It's not till like 15, you know, in the 1540s somewhere where he finally pub publishes just before he's dead. And nobody will accept it until Galileo comes along a little bit later and, and, and really pushes it through. Okay? But anyway, after this idea comes out, you have to realize that for a lot of Christians, this was a direct attack on the Bible. Because I just showed you verses that the earth doesn't move. Lots of Christians, godly people, people who love Jesus, some of the fathers of the Reformation, smart people, theologians, had said, this is what the Bible says. If the Bible's wrong, the whole thing's out, right? I mean, if it's, if it's God's word, it has to be true. And so a lot of Christians were attached to this. So someone like Martin Luther, okay? Martin Luther is one of the fathers of the Reformation. I'm going to put up a quote, what Martin Luther thought about Copernicus. And I wish I had room on the screen to include the whole quote, because Mr. Luther was very colorful. He was a great guy. But anyway, uh, maybe not always very nice. But this is what he says about Copernicus. There is talk of a new astrologer who wants to prove that the earth moves and goes around the sky, the sun, the moon, just as if somebody were moving in a carriage or ship. You can just hear him just laughing. What a ridiculous idea. The fool wants to turn the whole art of astronomy upside down. However, as the Holy Scripture tells us, so did jo Joshua bid the sun to stand still and not the earth. Okay? And John Calvin and other guys, men who, who, who love God, theologians who knew their Bibles, also similarly argued, based on the Bible, this is the word of God, there's no way the earth moves around the sun. Now, if you were to go back in time, and Mr. Luther, again, you would not call him Martin or Marty, okay? One of the fathers of the Reformation, okay? So if you were to go back in time and Mr. Luther was to see you and ask you this question, are you fixed earth or are you moving earth? What would you tell him? And he's looking at you. And, he's, and you're like, you're kind of mumbling. What did you say? Are you fixed earth or are you moving earth? And you kind of mumble again, I'm, I, I'm moving earth. What? Martin Luther would say to you. Are you against the authority of Scripture? Do you not believe in the authority of Scripture that this is the Word of God and it's eternal? And he would just lambaste you. And what would you say to him? But I, I've seen pictures. <laughs> it, it moves. <laughs> Don't you believe the Bible? What would you say to him? Why is it that we totally believe the Bible is the Word of God and eternal Yet we look at those passages where it says the earth stands still and we, and we know it doesn't even bother us. It doesn't bother us that we know the earth is moving. How is it? It's because intuitively we know that's not what the passage is teaching. So let me give you the fourth thing. That, or not the fourth thing. There's other things we've talked about too, but we've talked about poetry, hyperbole, figures of speech. Let me talk about one last thing here that we intuitively get. When the writers of Scripture describe things in nature, they speak in terms of appearances. Does that make sense? They speak in terms of appearances. Now, do we not do the same thing all the time? I mean, 
If you get up early and see a beautiful sunrise and take a little picture and, you know, text it out to your friends or family or whatever and say, what a beautiful sunrise this morning, do you immediately getting a get a text back, you know, criticizing you? Well, technically, the sun didn't rise this morning, dodo. <laughs> I mean, technically, you didn't see a sunrise. The sun's not moving. We are. You didn't see the sunrise. You got up early this morning and watched the sun appear as the earth completed another revolution on its axis. That's what you did. <laughs> we don't talk like that. We all know, we know the earth revolves around the sun and it spins. But we don't talk like that. We talk in terms of appearances, right? And that's perfectly acceptable. In the same way, you know, David goes out into nature and he doesn't feel a 67,000 mile an hour wind sweeping across the earth. And he looks at the consistency of nature. The sun comes up every day. And he says, wow, this God who set the earth on its foundations. Now I'm going to come back to that. And we're going to explore that a little bit more in just a moment. But he's speaking in terms of appearances. And we do this all the time. Now, one of the reasons I, want to, I wanted to speak about this again is, and that I'm passionate about it, is because if we're not careful when we read the Bible, two things are going to happen. We will create conflicts between science and the Bible that aren't there or that don't need to be there. Number two, we're going to end up making the Bible and our faith look really foolish. And now I want to use a modern-day example of something that's going on. And my point is not to belittle anyone. My point is, is none of that. But it's just the reality of something that's happening. And I'm just going to, going to talk to our church because you can just see we're on the extreme end of, of a literalistic reading. People can go to all kinds of really actually bizarre places. How many of you have heard of the modern-day current flat earth movement? Has any of you heard of that? Okay. Um, if you haven't heard of that, you really need to look it up when you go home. It, I actually, I first heard of this couple of years ago. I actually couldn't believe it. The first time I heard someone from a church came to me and said, there's this guy at work. He believes the earth is flat. And I just burst out laughing. <laughs> I was laughing and laughing and laughing. He wasn't laughing. I said, come on. And come on, you're not serious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's like, I need answers to give. I mean, you need answers. <sighs> Look at the pictures. There's thousands of pictures and the earth is, it's a ball. And he says, yeah, but he says they're all faked. It's a vast conspiracy involving literally tens and tens of thousands of people. Are you kidding me? <laughs> what, what about airplanes that fly around the world? Well, actually, they're flying in circles above the earth, and it feels like they're going in a straight line. Yes, that's what they think. <laughs> Antarctica surrounds. I, 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 looked this, I was looking this up yesterday early in the morning. And, I mean, these people, they have conferences. They had one in Edmonton last month. They have flat earth cruises you can go on. Okay? Now again, my point is not to belittle. There's all kinds of reasons why people believe this. It's, it, it's like, a, it's, it's like a, a really a gigantic uh, kind of psychological experiment. So they have people looking at this to say, why, why would people want to believe a conspiracy that big? It's really the ultimate kind of conspiracy um, um, theory. And not, certainly not everybody that believes this even is Christian. People come at this from all kinds of, of, of reasons, uh, not just because of the Bible. But in terms of Christians, there are Christians, and this is a growing movement, okay? There are people in this community that believe this now. And again, my point isn't to belittle them or to laugh at them. We, we, we need to love everybody. And it's not necessarily that they're stupid. They have reasons why they believe what they, what they believe about this. But for some Christians, it comes out of their reading of Scripture. And they look in the Bible and they say, look at all these verses. I found a website yesterday that said 200 verses that prove the earth is a flat earth. And they say, this is the most, 
consistent, true to the scriptures, uh, you know, reading of the scripture. And if this is the word of God, then this has to be true. And I looked at my 200 verses. I was amazed. So I just looked up the first one on their list. Can I just show it to you? It's actually in the New Testament. Okay, do you mind? Okay, Luke chapter 6, verse 17. Okay, and if I get, yeah, there it is. And he, that's Jesus, came down with them and stood on a level place. Okay? That's the first one. And then, of course, their point is, how can you have a level place on a, on a, on a ball? Now, can you see right away how this is not the point of the passage? Okay? What's happening here again is the writers of Scripture are talking in terms of appearances. I mean, we do it all the time. I often refer to the drive from Steinbeck to Winnipeg. It's got to be one of the flattest drives anywhere on earth. Like, it's just flat. And you can look out, it's flat. And we talk about Manitoba being flat. Now, when I say the earth is flat, you don't go home and think, wow, that's quite a statement about, about the nature of the earth. And because it couldn't be flat if it's a globe. No, I'm talking about my experience. At the surface, the globe is so big that at the surface, our experience is flat. So we talk all the time in terms of just how it appears, how we experience the world without making deeper comments about the We know it's a globe. We know it's, the earth is round and all those sorts of things, okay? So that's really, really important, and you have to understand that. So when you're reading the Bible, poetry, hyperbole, figures of speech, and appearances. So now, the question is, if we go back to Psalm 104, how do we read those passages that seem to be out-of-date science? How do we read those passages, and do we just throw them out? Do we just ignore them? How do we read those passages that seem to teach out-of-date science? So let me tell you a few things. First of all, first thing in answer to that, I want to say this. There are hardly any passages in Scripture which talk about science. Did you know that? I want you just to let that sink in for a little bit because sometimes Christians have been afraid to hear statements like that because they're like, oh, the Word of God just it gives us so much truth and all this sort of stuff. I want you just to try and think of your mind right now of a passage that talks about science in the Bible. The Bible does not tell us how to classify animals. It does not tell us about the universe. It does not tell us about physics or mathematics. It just doesn't. And I challenge you to find where it does. It doesn't. The Bible has some huge implications for science because it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And now when we go and look at the universe, we find evidence everywhere of intelligent design. When we go and look at the human body and the cell and the DNA, we find evidence of intelligent design. God created the earth. It has implications, massive implications for science. But the Bible is not primarily a science book. In fact, it has almost no science in it. I really can't think of, of any examples. The Bible is a historical book, not a science book. Does that make sense? The Bible is not a science book. It is a history book. It tells us the history of God's working on the earth and with human beings. It starts with, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We find evidence of that everywhere in science. And then after that, it tells us about the fall of mankind into sin. And then it's the story of redemption. Moses and the Israelites, the promise of the Messiah, Jesus coming to die, resurrect. And everything the Bible tells us happened really did happen. It's a history book, and everything the Word of God says is absolutely true. It's a history book. 
So I'm going to touch on that history thing one last time. We're just drawing to an end here, but I first, I want to go back to Psalm 104. But what do we do with a passage like Psalm 104 now, that God set the earth on its foundations so that it should never be moved? How in light of our understanding of the universe are we to understand a verse like this? Okay? And the answer is, again, David is talking about appearances. He's not trying to teach us about the universe. He's talking in terms of his experience, and he's worshiping God. Nothing wrong with that. So this is not a, this is not a lie. This is not the Holy Spirit getting it wrong. This is David worshiping. Now, the interesting thing is, the more we learn about science, the more we actually find this verse to be true. Isn't that true? Isn't that neat? I want to show you how amazing the Word of God is. Now, David himself probably did believe the sun revolved around the earth, and that's okay because everybody in his day and age pretty much did. And that's okay. But under the power of the Holy Spirit, he, he inspired by the Holy Spirit, he looks out at nature and he's like, who set the earth on its foundations? And he knows God must have done it because it's so consistent. The sun comes up every single day without fail. It never misses. It's not like three years ago. Remember that day when the sun failed to come up? Every day. And the seasons are just clockwork. Spring, summer, fall, winter. And he just looks in awe at the mountains and the way nature works. And he's like, it's predictable. It's orderly. It's safe. God set the earth on its foundations. Now, the more we know about science, the more incredibly true that truth becomes. Isn't it true? Now, we know the earth moves now, but you know what's so incredible is it moves around the earth, or I mean around the sun. Oh. The earth moves around the sun in an absolutely, uh, you know, orderly and consistent and safe orbit and does not change. Why? Because the law of gravity is so precisely tuned. It's so precisely tuned. I mean, if the law of gravity was just a teensy, and I've talked about this before, but it was just the teensiest, microscopiest, that's not really a word, but tiniest bit <laughs> stronger, the earth would get sucked into the sun, and we'd burn, and then the universe would collapse on us and crush whatever was left. If it was just the teensiest, you know, smallest bit weaker, we would literally hurtle off into, in, into space. You know, you'd go out in the sky, you'd see planets and stars, and we'd go hurtling, and we'd hit something and we'd die in the most nightmarish way imaginable. It'd be awful. But the earth doesn't do any of those things. Who fixed the earth on its foundations? It, or, it orbits in an absolutely stable, safe, consistent way because of how precisely engineered the law of gravity is. But you know, it's not even just gravity. Did you, I hope after this message, you appreciate our moon. Our moon is absolutely, incredibly rare. Okay? It is just the perfect size at just the perfect distance from the Earth so that as it orbits the Earth, it stabilizes the, the, the tilt of the Earth's axis so that the Earth perfectly moves, perfectly consistently, so that we get seasons, spring, summer, fall, and winter, year after year, they never miss. Although sometimes in Manitoba it feels like we missed <laughs> a couple of them. And it's not even just the moon. We could go on and on and on. We have a perfectly sized planet, Jupiter, which is big enough. You need a really big planet to help stabilize all the orbits. Because have you ever thought about this? Have you ever noticed or, or, or learned that all of the planets orbit the sun in a flat plane? It's not like here's Mars and here's Mercury and here's Jupiter and Earth and it's all just kind of going wild around the... It, we, they all have consistent orbits and they all orbit in a, in a perfectly orderly plane 
And the reason they orbit in a perfectly plane, there's actually a number of reasons, but part of the reason is because we have a planet Jupiter that helps to stabilize all the different orbits of the planets. Now, David didn't understand all of that science, but he understood enough to know. He goes out and he says, who fixed the earth on its foundations? Who made it so stable and consistent and orderly? Well, the more we learn about science, the more true we find that verse to be. But at the same time, we don't have to read it literalistically and try and come up with a bizarre scientific explanation that the sun still revolves around the earth. So let me finish with this. You say, well, what, what do we keep in all of this? Well, the Bible is absolutely true in everything it means to teach us. Here's the other big takeaway point. The Bible is a historical book, not a science textbook. Okay? The Bible was written to tell us the history of God's activity on the earth. So when the Bible tells you that Jonah was swallowed by a whale, he was swallowed by a whale. That actually really happened. Now, it could have been a shark, and it could have been a whale. It could have been, I mean, those are probably the only two options. But we don't need to get into the biology of that. He got swallowed by a big, big fish. Okay? It happened. When the Bible tells us that the Israelites came out of Egypt, that actually happened. And the interesting thing is, archaeology more and more is finding proof and, and all kinds of evidence that the Hebrew people were in Egypt before they were in Israel. Isn't that fascinating? Amen. That's amazing. Okay? Did you know for years and years, archaeologists scoffed at King David? I mean, much of the Old Testament is about King David. They said, we, there's no archaeological proof for him. It's a myth. It's a legend. It's like King Arthur. And then in 1993, someone pulled a slab of rock 2,900 years old with an inscription on there to the house of David. And suddenly, that was, a, that was a big disappointment for a bunch of people who thought this thing was filled with myths. It's a history book, and the history is real. Amen. They said about the Gospels, Pontius Pilate, they said for the longest time, they said Pontius Pilate wasn't, there was no person like that. How, these Gospels are made up fairy tales. And uh, there was no Pontius Pilate who was governor of Judea. We would know about that. They would have him on a list somewhere. And then in, 19, in the 1960s, someone pulled up a plaque that said Pontius Pilate, prefect of Judea. Archaeology continues. The more they find, the more they confirm that the history in this book is true. That's right. Because the Bible is absolutely true in everything it means to teach. In its history, everything it says happened did really happen. In its theology, everything it tells about God is true. In God's law, everything it tells us about how God defines right and wrong is eternal and true. But we must not read into it things it is not trying to teach us. Amen? So bow your heads at me and close your eyes, and let's worship the Lord who wrote this book. Thank you, God, for your word. It is eternal and true, and we are blessed. I pray that as a church, we will eat your word and meditate on it more and more and more. I pray that this message will give people more confidence. I want us, as our young people are going off to high school and university and careers, I want them to be able to stand confidently on your word, Jesus, because your word is eternal. Lord, we want to follow your laws. And we want to have life in your, in your Holy Spirit. And we want to love your words. Thank you, Jesus, for the Bible. Thank you for this church family. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Southland Church. For more information or to download this and many other messages, please visit us at myselfland.com.